ladies and gentlemen. I'd like to take this moment to say thank you for listening to the Real Rescue Podcast. It means a lot to me that you enjoy these stories as much as I do. Since the start of this podcast, we've had a lot of support from all over the world. It has been amazing. Now, we have companies joining our team that also want to say thank you for all that you are doing out there standing the watch. These companies are offering discounts on their products as a way to support the rescue community and those tuning into the Real Rescue Podcast. Just go to therealrescue.com, click on Sponsors, and see these incredible offers for yourself. This episode of the Real Rescue Podcast is brought to you by Breeze Eastern, the world's only dedicated helicopter hoist and winch provider. Access. Because when lives are at stake and conditions are challenging, clear communication is of the utmost importance. SR3 Rescue Concepts, because you don't know what you don't know. And Versalips, to be your best, you need to squat your best. Breeze Eastern, they dedicate themselves to our helicopter rescue world. Since the very first helicopter rescue in November of 1945, Breeze Eastern has designed and manufactured superior rescue hoist solutions. While much of the technology and the unique mission requirements have changed over the past 75 years, their commitment to the rescuers, the operators, and those being rescued has not. Contact them today by visiting them at breeze-eastern.com. The Axness PNG wireless ICS system can bring cutting-edge wireless intercommunication system technology to any aircraft. The PNG system can be fully integrated into an existing ICS system or can be carried on and off as a mobile base station. They can go anywhere, at any time, on any aircraft. Plus, with the strongest and most robust waterproof handheld on the market, this system can take a hit and keep working. Their wireless intercom systems are designed to enhance situational awareness through improved communication capability. This system brings superior noise-canceling technology to eliminate rotor wash and engine noise from your ICS. The Axness PNG wireless system is currently deployed in more than 1,800 public safety, air ambulance, and search and rescue aircraft worldwide. I have personally used the Axness system in four different countries and on five different airframes. It is awesome. If you want more information, contact them today at axness.com. That's A-X-N-E-S.com. You just make sure you tell them Quinny sent me. SR3 Rescue Concepts is a training company that can help your helicopter training. They train daytime, nighttime, aerial firefighting, hoist, longline, fast rope, rappel, and more. They can assist your program with standardization and safety checks or just an FAA annual refresher. With the certified flight instructor pilots and experienced crew, they are ready to help your agency keep up to date with current techniques, rules, regulations, and equipment. Plus, right now, SR3 is offering 10% off anything in their web store with the promo code, all capital letters, REALRESCUE, R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q. Plus, they are offering another 10% from their partners, Petzl, and their equipment. All you got to do is send an email to info at sr3rescueconcepts.com 
mention this podcast, The Real Rescue Podcast, and they'll take care of the rest. And Versalist. When you're at the gym working on your squats, building your leg strength for the next rescue mission, depth matters. If you're like me, getting below parallel on your squats is tough. Well, allow me to introduce Versalifts Heel Inserts. These gems have become one of my new favorite accessories in my gym bag. Simply place them into your regular training shoe, either on top or underneath the insole, and bam! You've got a heel lift benefit of a weightlifting shoe, but the comfort and flexibility of your regular trainer. So the next time your workout just has heavy squats, grab your V2 strength inserts. Or how about a run, pull up, push up, air squat, and another run? Grab your V2 endurance insert. Or my own personal workout of running, clusters, and ring muscle up. Grab your original V2 inserts and go crush it. Check them out today at vlifts.com or on Instagram at Versalift. And when you're ready to get a few pair of your own, make sure you get your 10% off with the Real Rescue discount code. Squat well, friends. Coming up next in this episode of The Real Rescue, we are joined by a guy who's done search and rescue in the United States, Sweden, and Greece, just to name a few. You go from one person to 100 people in this episode. The stories are amazing. I'm so happy you joined us. So please welcome our next guest, Mr. Matthew Vader. My name is Jason Quinn. I am United States Coast Guard Rescue Swimmer number 500. These are my rescues and rescues from those of us that put our lives on the line every day so others may live. This is The Real Rescue Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Real Rescue. Today, I've got a guy who is originally from the U.S., now living in Sweden, part of the Swedish Sea Rescue Society and also an international uh what is it nation wait what is it internet international maritime rescue federation that's uh, what i was trying to say but i was not what was coming out at but all. otherwise uh, yeah otherwise in sweden and the swedish sea rescue society i work with search and rescue development internationally with pretty much everyone perfect ladies and gentlemen mr matt matthew fader hey, hey what's up matthew how are you hey, doing really good thanks for having me on this is, uh, it's a pleasure and i've been uh, listening to some of your podcasts and uh hearing friends and as well as uh, strangers that work in sar and it's uh, it's really an honor and a pleasure to be here it's cool well, to, thanks, to be part of it yeah well man i'm super psyched actually i'm gonna give a little shout out to graham down there in uh, south of south africa uh he's the one that kind of gave a kind of he gave me your contact information and said hey man i got a guy up in sweden i was like yes please <laughs> so that's how it all happens so, awesome and yeah, it was, it thanks, was really man. cool listening to his podcast and uh you know i was able to host him uh, about a year ago exactly uh, up here in sweden and uh, talk a lot about sar operations so what a great person and great organization down in south africa yeah, so it's, it's now, part of what I do is reach out to fantastic people in the SAR world. Right? Oh, it's it's one of my favorite parts about this podcast. I get to talk to you guys all, all over the world doing this. Um, that's good. So now you and Graham, you're for like everybody's awareness, you're kind of doing the same thing where it's sea rescue, but a lot of it's on uh, small boat boats that roll out and going on scene. Is that kind of accurate? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, besides the obvious geographical differences of South Africa and way up here in Scandinavia, we're almost in the time, same time zone, but just straight up the planet. Um, <laughs> we have a similar organization in that way. Um, the Swedish Sea Rescue Society is a volunteer organization. It's uh, as well as the, the South Africans, it's non-governmental. Um, so, yeah, we are a volunteer NGO doing a large part of the sea rescue. So we're, we're very similar that way. And wow. you know, the number of stations, number of boats, different sized vessels and all that doing uh, SAR as well as uh, medical transports and, you know, preventative shouts, you know, if someone gets in trouble. But I'll get more into that in a little bit. Okay. Okay. Yeah. We don't want to go too far. Don't want to go too far. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, Matthew, if you don't mind, uh, give everybody a little bit of a background from the U.S., moved to Sweden. Yeah. How did you, how did that happen? And then how did you get into all the search and rescue you do now? Yeah, it's it's a strange story, and um, everyone has their journeys. And I'm in this like weird halfway point in my life that um, soon soon fifty, and twenty five years of my life I spent in the United States, born and raised, and then twenty five years now this year I've been living in Sweden. So yeah, I was born in the East Coast in New Jersey, just like born in the USA, like the boss. Uh, hey, grew up at, on, hey. on the islands there, you know, like um. Just out of curiosity, yeah. what exit? Yeah, I don't know. I'm not so good on the turnpike. But uh, yeah, so I was, born, I was born out there like in New Jersey and spent a lot of time on the Jersey Shore back in the 70s and 80s and was really enthralled by like the whole lifeguards and, and beach life and all that. Um, spent a bit of time in Baltimore, Maryland, obviously very maritime uh, uh, harbor focus and just the whole longshoremen and having that feel a little bit of salt water there and going down to like, you know, the Chesapeake Bay, Annapolis, spent a lot of time on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. My parents lived there for a bit, even more maritime. You're living on a sandbank out in the middle of the ocean, little shipwrecks, awesome. dating back yeah. to pirates and all that. Yeah. Um, so then the large part of my life was spent the, out in California. So I made the shift over to the West Coast. Um, so th throughout my life, both East Coast and West Coast, I've been surfing. I'm a, I'm a wave surfer since a little kid getting to know the ocean and just been just want to do everything I could close to the water um, did more and more lifeguard stuff um, got over to the west coast and just started just surfed and did a bit of art and things like that and one time when I was probably like 19 um, I was surfing at a place called Trestles Trestles is one of the most popular surf areas in southern California it's actually located on Camp Pendleton U.S. Marine Base, just yeah. south of San Clemente. So we're talking like 93 back in the days, so but no cell phones and stuff like that. And it happened to be like a Halloween night and seriously, full moon. It was getting dark, coming out from surf and trestles are so crowded. Um, you know, there's a lot of people in the water. It's, it's, you know, twilight, getting dark. And then all of a sudden there's some commotion in the water. And uh, some some guy was actually uh, unconscious. I think he fell off his board. This is all you know speculation because I think the board hit his head or maybe he hit the cobblestones on the bottom. But he had a, a face facial laceration, and he was unconscious. And who knows how long he was under the water? But a, a surfer to brought him up to the surface, and then we helped bring him onto the cobbles and do CPR, which. For me, I really think it, it felt like a half an hour. It might have been 10 minutes. It might have been 15. But if you've ever done CPR and mouth-to-mouth, -mouth, 
and it, it feels like an eternity because your arm yeah. gets so tired and i'm like 19 so i'm like fit for fight and ready to go but since there was no cell phones back then um and you're and we're pretty far away trust me you have to walk quite a bit um to get to your car or even these like emergency call boxes that would be on the highway which of course were disabled you know like of course graffiti uh, torn out stuff <laughs> like that so someone was a runner and went to all the way back to land you know the uh, what do you say civilization and were able and then like you know a full-on like chopper came down so the it wasn't like since it's on camp pendleton there was you know like a, a military response uh both from military police and as well as like a helicopter who came down and military doctor came off and i remember handing off this patient who had been doing cpr for how long unconscious water coming out of him after every breath and that i was just left there the the, the chopper flew off the patient flew off and i felt like Oh, this this is what I want to do. I was like to combine <laughs> the salt water, the ocean, the surf, um, pulling people out, and hopefully saving lives. I have no idea if that guy made it. Most likely not, considering how long we did it. But that made just a, this huge impression on me. So after that, I was just like, what can I do medically, like to get more medically proficient? You know, I'm a, I'm a, I know the ocean since I was a kid, and of course, you you never learn the ocean fully, especially in the surf. Um, but I thought like, okay, I want to do as much medical training as possible. So I did like wilderness first aid, uh, wilderness first responder, well, for EMT courses, stuff like that while I'm in the U.S. And this is in like my early 20s. Um, I lived in Laguna Beach, California for most of this time. Nice. And California, it's just it's paradise. I mean, just amazing art, art colony um, that was still you could still live there being a poor surfer and artist and all that. <laughs> not so, anymore. No, not anymore. <laughs> so we, I would surf all the time, but California, the way it is, um, you know, there's all these natural disasters. And in 90, yeah, 93, same year, pretty much. Um, there was a huge fire. You had this um, huge fire in Laguna Canyon that burnt up most of the city. Um, not most of the city, but a lot of houses in, in Laguna Canyon. There was a big fire. And I noticed all these people in panic. Um, I was standing, I was in school in, in, the, in the canyon. I noticed the fire coming through, saw all these animals running. And I was like, okay, something's up. And I had this feeling like I could keep my calm in a chaotic situation. So it kind of built upon this experience of the surfer um, that, I, that I just say, or, you know, was part of the rescue. And I felt like, okay, I'm being calm. I can evacuate, help other people evacuate. This turned into a very large fire and um, helping people move away from this fire um, for, for uh, like half the day until the night the city evacuated. So that being said, it just felt like this, like, okay, I, I kind of like catastrophe management or rescue. I don't like catastrophes, but if it's going to happen, I want to be prepared. So building upon the medical experience and all that, I just thought like, how am I going to get better at this? So later on, a couple of years later, you have like El Nino and it started raining so much. And of course, after these, this year of fires, there was nothing holding on to the ground, like the, the, the soil and these large cliffs into the canyon. So there was rock slides and mud slides and, and you know, another catastrophe built on another catastrophe. So further up in Laguna Canyon, um, there was a mudslide, uh, a section of houses um, was taken out. And there's probably YouTube clips on this. Of course, this is back in the, the early 90s. But one of the most amazing things I've ever seen ever, um, I didn't actively take part in it, but I was 
in this area of the canyon helping people in this mudslide. But what it was is that another rescuer had seen something in the mud going past and it looked like a rock to him. So he just reached out and pulled it and it happened to be an infant that was swept out from a house and he pulled the, you know, did the finger sweep, got the mud out and crying and it was alive. So oh hearing that story God. and being part of that area, it was like, this is incredible. Like there is nothing better than being part of a, you know, not just like a large scale rescue, but being part of a rescue, a rescue team that is in amazing individuals in the right place at the right time. So it's like, okay, how am I going to get better at catastrophes? <laughs> you know, I'm just thinking like, <laughs> oh, you can't practice this stuff. It happens when it happens and you can be prepared to a certain point. So I had definitely got, got the rescue bug. So yeah, I'm getting a bit older now. And I was like, and I, and while I was living in Laguna Beach, I was living with a Swedish girl. Um, we met there in school. Uh, we moved in together. We're living beachside, living the life. And after she graduated from uh, art school there in Laguna, um, we decided like, oh, maybe we should go to Sweden. And I, I came over here just like, you know, 24, like, you know, on a vacation. I was like, this place is awesome. Came here in the summer. <laughs> and, and there's something here called the midsummer holidays, like, which is like the biggest party of the year, more or less, you know, the midsummer oh, solstice yes. and all that. So I was here and I came here to the archipelago of Gothenburg on the West Coast. And it was like party and boats and sun all night long, more or less. I was like, yeah, this place is cool. Um, I could think about living here. Went back to Los Angeles, went to the Swedish consulate and applied for residency. So we hung out there in, in Laguna for a little bit more. And then in 1998, we decided like, okay, let's make the move. Um, so we, we, we took a big leap, you know, uh, going from California and everything I knew in the United States, uh, both East and West Coast. Um, and like, hey, I'm going to move to a foreign country. That's going to entail learning another language, starting, I guess, another career, how it would be. So I made the big move, and then 1999, my daughter, my daughter was born here in Sweden, my first daughter. Nice. Um, uh, yeah, shout out to Linnea. She's awesome. Linnea! Uh, she, yeah, Linnea. So she, yeah, so she made, she was like the reason. I was like, yeah, I'm going to live here. I live in Sweden now. I have a Swedish daughter, a Swedish wife, and all that. Um, you know, I got to get a Volvo. I love it, dude. <laughs> you know? I got to yeah. get a Volvo. And a house, a house that's painted a certain red, you know, all these different oh, things. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so... So Swedish life was full on, and I still wanted to build upon that whole the medical thing. I worked a little bit in the outdoor industry, um, you know, working with different companies and testing gear and stuff like that. So I had a foot like still there. Um, the maritime climate here, first and foremost, in in Sweden and especially on the west coast here, is is huge. Uh, there's so many uh, leisure boaters, um, huge tradition. I mean, of course, Vikings and all that. But definitely like, you know, commercial stuff like that. So you feel that Gothenburg's a maritime city, similar to Baltimore or would have places like that. Hardworking town, you know, like, like the boss comes from. Um, so, yeah, I, I decided to go continue on the medical uh, side. So I went and got my, I guess, EMT here um, okay. while I'm learning Swedish. So it was like, okay, it wasn't just getting re-qualifying re for that kind of stuff. It was like, do it in another language you know what is spleen <laughs> like i don't know you know like <laughs> learning all these different words for anatomy parts but anyway i think that my american um, medical back like courses and stuff really prepared me of giving me a head start so it was more like repeating courses rather than redoing them um i did so i did the mt stuff um i did a practical nurse and then i continued on to university because university is free here 
So I went to the oh, University wow. of Gothenburg. Yeah, I, I learned what's up to a, something called Swedish B that got me into the university with my grades and all that. Um, and I got to take a degree in nursing, so a Bachelor of Science, and I become an, become an RN. So it was fantastic. So I was like, okay, the path is clear. So I'm, I'm wow. still not in the salty environment, but I'm getting into the clinical stuff and learning as much as possible. Um, so it was super cool. I got, got an education. What do I do with it? How do I get back to what I originally felt with these, you know, rescues out in the field, um, you know, larger catastrophe, mass casualty incidents and all that kind of stuff. So everyone wants to get on like ambulance helicopter and ambulance and all that. Um, but I felt like I need to do some clinical stuff. So I went to like surgery, did some stuff like that for a little bit. And then about eight months into my RN career, um, I switched over to psychiatry. Oh, it was kind okay. of like a yeah, full 180. And it was like, because it was really, really fascinating, like, um, you know, emergency, psychiatric emergencies and stuff like that. And the reason I did it was like, I wanted to work with people with uh, schizophrenia, uh, people with psycho psychosis. Um, and it's like, again, it seems really far away from the blood and the broken bones and the SAR missions that or I would say beach, yes. beach rescue. <laughs> but my thinking behind this was like, okay, it's hard to practice for catastrophe medicine. It's hard to practice for mass casualty in, uh, incidents. Um, but if I work with people on closed wards, you know, that were always in a fight or flight situation where reality was always changed for them um, and keep my cool, you know, and know how to deal with not just violent patients, but people that are really struggling um, to get a grip on things. I was like, I can keep a cool head out in the field. That's my thinking, at least, because that's what I saw, like in California during earthquakes or, or the, the mudslides or the fires that people, they were in like this mini psychosis because, you oh, know, yeah. they can't deal with it. And their brain was overloaded and they, they weren't functioning, but I could keep a clear head. So I did that for almost a decade. I worked in Salgrinsky University Hospital and I became like, a, I say, a department head of, of psychosis and schizophrenia working with all these, I don't want to say crazy people, but people with mental illnesses. <laughs> and it was awesome. It was the most unique people you could ever imagine. And, you know, you don't have to yeah. say it. The rest of us that are all listening, we can all say it yeah, yeah, yeah. right in our head. <laughs> no, but again, the most fascinating people I ever worked with. And sometimes, again, there was, um, you know, violence and, um, and threats and things like that. Because some people can't handle it. I mean, they need to be helped into a position, whether it's brought into the ward itself to the emergency department or yeah. uh, my thinking was like to help them in their home as much as possible to keep them out of the hospital so an amazing experience and i was yeah i can never replace that and this experience will come back into my life so during this time i've been thinking okay i want to become get back out into the field you know so maybe not professionally do it right away going from like you know ambulance or something or ambulance helicopter i'm thinking okay, I'll, I'll maybe get into sea rescue because how it works here in Sweden is you have um, sea rescue is run by the Swedish Maritime Administration, a government agency. They're the ones who run the JRCC, so Joint Rescue Coordination Center. So they, they're the one who called the shouts and all that. The Swedish Maritime Administration, they also have the, the rescue helicopters. Okay. So, so you have a, a five bases and the helicopters go out from these different bases around the country. Um, but the lion's share of SAR 
is run by the Swedish Sea Rescue um, Society. So a non-governmental volunteer-based organization are the ones that are getting the call from the JRCC and Swedish Maritime Administration. Wow. Um, there is a Swedish Coast Guard and they are very, very much part of the SAR system. Absolutely. Um, yeah. The Swedish, Swedish uh, Coast Guard, like a lot of Coast Guards around the world, are border protection. Absolutely. And uh, not so much customs because there's a customs agency. Um, but the, they do environmental protection. They do a lot of cleaning up and oil spills. And they yeah. definitely respond to SAR alarms. But 90% of SAR cases, the Swedish Sea Rescue Society and volunteers are involved. And that's a pretty wow. crazy model. Yeah. So I was like, oh, I want to become a volunteer at least, you know, and get into that. Yeah. So, so yeah, I joined the, the Swedish Sea Rescue Society. Um, and in the meantime, I was actually talking with their central office um, and, and the then CEO, who's now chairman of the board. Uh, and then Captain Rolf Esterstrom, I was like, you know, I'd, I'd like to apply my skills and maybe work for you guys too. Um, the Swedish Merit, excuse me, Swedish Sea Rescue Society is like, I would say, two thousand four hundred volunteers. There is two thousand four hundred people vo volunteers that come in. Sea wow. Rescue volunteers. There wow. is seventy-four stations. You know, in a in a you know country like the coast of Sweden is huge. Um, wow. And I don't want to brag or boast, but uh, Sweden actually has the most islands in the world. Um, Ooh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Hey. You're thinking, I mean, no offense. I mean, Canada, they have a lot. The Philippines, <laughs> Indonesia. Um, but if you really look at it, um, Sweden has the most islands. But what we constitute, what constitutes an island here can be a rock sticking above sea level on a normal day. So we have a lot of rocks sticking out that are called islands, but we have a lot of. Uh, difficult waters in the archipelagos both outside of stockholm and gothenburg and other places so anyway oh, that's cool yeah that being said um we have 74 stations placed around the country um that's you know roughly the size larger than california but if you turn it on its axis to put things in perspective for our non-europeans if you turn sweden from the north of sweden and turn it on its axis it's going to reach all the way down to portugal it's a long coastline Oh, it's like wow. Nor Norway has a long coastline. So we have a lot of different places that we need to like, you know, place rescue stations for like proximity of, of the alarm because, you know, alarm out up north, it's going to take a long time to get to. So um, we have a lot of different stations that are based, you know, like are placed there because of, you know, what's the population, what, what's the boating life there, what's the probability of SAR rescues and so forth. So just during the time that I've worked here, we've increased stations from like 50 something to this 74 and 2,400 volunteers. Um, wow. So that being said, um, the administration of this non-governmental uh, organization, which is also membership in this organization, is then was about like 25 people running this huge organization. Um, so it was really hard to get a foot in the door as a, you know, as a paid employee. Yeah. Um, so I worked on it for a number of years and I talked, you know, made my case of made how I could perhaps improve things if I came on board. And uh, so I, I was in 2012, I was able to make the shift, take a leave of absence from the hospital and start working here in a professional capacity as well as a volunteer. So when I go out to my station, I'm a volunteer. I, I take off one hat and I, I'm not the guy from the office because I don't I don't have that role out there. I do SAR just like anyone else. Um, so anyway, I started working for Swedish Sea Rescue, 
and had a number of different roles. Like almost right away, I started working with education. Um, so I, was, I ran the educational department uh, the first year. Uh, and that was a lot of fun. It's great, like learning. And that's probably the biggest interaction I had with volunteers. Besides the volunteers at my station, it was like running courses um, and seeing that there was instructors for different courses that are, you know, similar to like a basic safety, an STCW, um, you know, like a three-day version of that that we run here. It was like 200 students per year we had. And this is wow. all paid for by the society for these volunteers. So wow. they're getting an amazing experience by being volunteer. Um, so I did that for a bit, like running the education and, and learning more myself about boats. Because if you really want to get back to it, it's like, yeah, I'm a surfer that knows medicine. <laughs> but, and I can drive a boat like Boston Whaler, you know, maybe a Hobie cat, you know. But, but these guys, but these women, men and women out here, they've been driving different types of boats their whole life. Luckily, the Sea Rescue Organization is, you know, it's not large ships. We're not talking about massive steel ships of, you know, 100 meters long or anything like that. These are fast surface rescue units, um, but really advanced for a volunteer organization. Now, double right. water jets, self-riding, all-weather lifeboats, single jet, uh, smaller eight, uh, say 20 foot versions. And so all different sizes. And so I'm running the education. I'm like, man, I'm not that creative driving a boat, but uh, I'll get instructors that are, you know, I just have to kind of have an <laughs> overview of it. So it was yeah. a huge learning process for me um you know getting into the branch but i just i knew what i knew is salt water and saving lives so i tried to apply that as much as i could throughout my career here and again this is 2012 so since then i drive a few boats but not great i'm still i still <laughs> rather be on the deck taking care of the patient or rescue swimming for that matter um and anyway awesome. funny story um and i'll if we back up for a quick second when i moved to sweden in 1998 um, I went out to one of these rescue stations, which is now my station without naming names. Um, I went out to this island outside of Gothenburg and I had my surfboard. Like I was looking for surf everywhere, you know, and there, <laughs> there is some waves out here, some pretty, really, really good ones too. And opposed to California, it's not very crowded. Some spots are, but um, it was, that was part of the whole exploration and all that. So I went to this island where this rescue station was had my like you know came back after surf a little bit long hair and all that and i remember these like old sea dogs that were standing at the station and i like yeah. tried to approach them and you know step in and hey i would very much like to volunteer and they just like looked me up and down like no nah. like no nah, no nah. <laughs> no nah. like we don't we don't need anyone to jump in the water like an idiot like you like we don't get in the water you know it's like this is a rescue boat you know so it was a different mentality even 20 years ago it was like <laughs> We have big ships. Yes, okay, we'll wear life jackets, but uh, only if we have to. And, you know, we don't get in the water, but we'll save as many people as we can from, from the boat. Where I, I was like, hey, I'll jump in the water. And I got really offended. You know, like they, did, like they looked me up and down like I wasn't worth anything. And I felt like, man, I can get in most any surf. I spent some bit time in Hawaii too. And I was like, you don't know waves. You know, like I was like, really? <laughs> and it took me that, that full like, decade to get over it and get my foot in the door until the organization too was like mature enough to like let other type of people. So that being said, now 2023, uh, I mean, if you look at our volunteer base, it used to be, you know, people that were fishermen and when they're off from the fish fishing or, or commercial shipping for that matter and go back to their, their home cities, they would 
man the lifeboats or the you know the the, the rescue boats for the society and that, that was way since like 1907 it's been that way but now like as, as times go on it's like we pride ourselves that of these 2400 volunteers there's all walks of life i mean there's definitely a lot of people that are like me that have a medical background nurses yeah. ambulance doctors what have you a lot of people still involved in in commercial shipping or fishing and all that uh, but you have IT, you have plumbers, you have seamstresses, you have, you name it. And it sounds really strange, but like, these are some of the most professional people I've met when it comes to maritime SAR, because they train for it, they have the heart for it, and the skill sets that they bring into the Sea Rescue Society makes us more complete. So... Back to the original point, it's like the, the administration for the society was pretty small, like 20, 30, now 40 people, because there's so much volunteer power. Like wow. these volunteers are just, they're just amazing. You can build this whole society and everyone helps each other. Yes, this society has a technical department. We build boats together with shipyards. We have a, a communication department, definitely, you know, and fundraising, because that's one of the most, thing, most important things beside volunteers. You gotta yeah. have the money to run the, the organization, but you right. have to have volunteers for the organization to be anything at all. So, so there's this huge power in volunteers, and that really like uh, talked to me. And um, I moved from education into a position that was called like um, leader of volunteer operations. So, and I had a partner who would say was maritime leader. He was, you know, the 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 designated person, the technical, the everything that had to do with the boats, and I was trying to like. Um, I say leader of volunteer operations. I tried to like talk with station leaders and the volunteers themselves of with organization as well as training and stuff like that. So I did that for a number of years. Um, and again, 2,400 volunteers, 2,400 unique skill sets. We also have 2,400 unique opinions about how an organization <laughs> be run. And, and, and sometimes it needs coaching and channeling and, finding fantastic leaders locally as well as you know dealing with things centrally um so hopefully did an okay job with that i tried to meet as many people as possible and talk and, and coach them through things and sometimes it went good sometimes it didn't um you know like any organization has its conflicts but you have to really treat uh volunteers with the utmost care and respect um so yeah that's been kind of like the 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 red thread through the whole thing, just dealing with the volunteers because, and asking them to do extraordinary things and SAR missions out here. So what does SAR look like in Sweden? Um, there's a, I think there's something like, a, there's a population of 10 million in Sweden. Oh, wow. a bunch That's of a lot. Like, like I said, a bunch of islands um, <laughs> and a lot of open coasts too that are pretty exposed. We don't have North Atlantic swell like our counterparts in, in uh, you know, England. Or, or in Holland, for that matter, with the North Sea beating down on them. We have decent amount of swell, and the water gets cold, and it's Arctic-like, and it's dark in February. Um, but like any place, you know, a lot of the majority of boating and all that's done in the summer. So now June is like, you know, starting to kick off the high season where we have our alarms. So of those 10 million in Sweden, there's something estimated like 1 million leisure boats. Oh, so, wow. so think about so think about 10% of the population having a boat, which is not exactly true. I mean, I'm sure there's rowboats and small lakes and stuff yeah. and places where we're not at. But the coastal SAR region, which we're mostly placed, and yeah. some of the major lakes, there's a lot of boats and a lot of rocks. 
to hit, a lot of grounding, a lot of um, getting a line of the propeller, things like that. So what we do a lot of, which is to say uh, 14,000 times we leave the dock each year. Oh we my cast gosh. off 14,000 times. Four, 5,000 of those are what we call preventative shouts. So say a member of our organization or even a non-member for that matter, if they get in trouble, run out of gas, hit a light, light grounding or something, they can give us a call directly to the station, you know, um, or they call a central number and then they'll, uh, the, the station will be designated. It's not, it's not emergency. It's not 911 or 112 in Europe. It's not call JRCC. It's like, hey, we need some help. Then it's like, wow. okay, how's the wind blowing? Can you throw in the anchor? We'll be there as soon as we can. And in a July day, you, one station can have 15 shouts at the same time. It's like, you know, a lot of people need a lot of help during oh the summer. Gosh. So again, so real, well, actually, real, real quick. So I just yeah. did some quick math on that 14,000 call outs per year. And that's across all 74 stations. Comes out to about 38 calls per day. Yeah. I say 14,000 wow. times we leave the dock. So it could be our own oh, call-outs okay. that we have to do okay. transportation. But, but yeah, All we're right. up there in, in the thousands of call-outs. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we do these shouts because if we didn't do them, if we didn't go out and help this person that's in light distress or, or, or you know, needs assistance, um, it'll probably become a SAR alarm eventually or something that becomes more serious. You know, the boat will go aground. It might take on water. You know, the people will get a little shooken up depending on the wind, the weather, and obviously the time of year if the water is cold. So every type of this shout in, in the colder months, that's danger for life because they're not going to last out there for, for as long as possible. So we do a lot of these shouts. And this is something it's like, I guess for universal for a lot of organizations coast guards volunteer organizations whatever when you tow a boat it may seem like a mundane thing but towings are serious you know it's like even if it's a leisure <laughs> boat you still have to hook up right you have to make sure you know the lines don't snap no one gets injured that's one thing but what i respect most out of out of towing missions and these five thousand missions that our volunteers do is the time it takes so a, a yeah. member or someone will call us, okay, I need a tow, and we'll take them to the nearest safe harbor that, you know, they can reasonably get assistance with, whether it's a boat lift or, or a, you know, a, a mechanic or something like that. It can take hours. It's like, oh, we have yeah. to tow them at six knots. And it's like, <laughs> oh, it's, it's what, 1030 at night when I got the shout. It's still light here in Sweden. But, you know, you can be come home after midnight for, for I say, a simple tow. But again, this is volunteer time we're talking about. You have to respect these people's like, you know, free, yeah. free time. And that's what they're doing. So I never take towing missions lightly because of the time it takes volunteers to be able to do all these missions. So Yeah, because they still got to go to work the next day. Yeah, yeah. And they might have <laughs> left work to go do this. I mean, yeah. that's the, of these 2,000 volunteers, 2,400, you know, some of them take take the beepers, you know, the, the so they get the shout or they have the, you know, the mobile call and all that. Uh, they might be at work and their employers know that they're in sea rescue. They let them go. Some employers like you can go when it's danger for life. <laughs> you know, but, or, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, if you got to tow someone, you got you know, I don't know. Yeah. It works differently for each individual, but there's like these individual, you know, almost like contracts with their own employers to be able to do that. So, um, and about in Sweden, uh, from the JRCC, that it's classified as SAR or Sea Rescue, 
uh, danger for life. There's uh, usually around a thousand cases. It can you be 1,100 cases or 1,200 or 900, depending on which year. And again, we're involved in 90% of those as a, a NGO. Wow. Um, a lot of times in cooperation with others. So obviously, if there's a SAR alarm, and depending on the scale of it, sometimes our units can take care of it. Sometimes it's together with helicopters or together with Coast Guard, with police, you name it, depending on what type of the mission is. Um, I'll give you an example, like last weekend at my station, it was like a sailboat at four in the morning, um, called our station. It was like, oh, we're, we're on the rocks, uh, we're outside the harbor. Yeah, four in the morning, you can kind of guess that they've been out partying or something like that. I'm like, what do you mean <laughs> you're on the rocks? Hang up the phone, call uh, 112, you know, the 911. Okay. The 112 dispatcher obviously will, will you know, call, will, will connect to the JRCC. Um, JRCC is like, okay, uh, my station, you go out, you take care of it. We're, and we'll also get Coast Guard to come too for reasons being it in the morning and why, why were they there? Uh -huh. the yeah, uh -huh. that kind of thing. So Law they're starting to back up. Yes. Yeah, so they're, yeah, so they're <laughs> they evacuate five people. The boat's on the rocks. It's teetering back and forth. And um, it's, it's windy, but it's like, you know, getting light by five in the morning here, at least at this time of year. Um, they evacuate five people. Then the, the, the sixth and seventh person, um, I guess they were a little larger and they couldn't jump from a sailboat down to the, to the rescue unit in the shallow teetering wavy water. So then, this, then they called the SAR helicopter to winch the, the last two off. So that's oh, the cooperation wow. of just something last weekend. So we're constantly doing stuff together and practicing together with these other um, governmental agencies and uh, uh, police, uh, police type uh, um, boats and all that. So cool cooperation, all the SAR stuff. We also do, I say, medical transports. Okay. Uh, there's, you know, there's the SAR medivac stuff. You know, right. and obviously helicopters, uh, Swedish Maritime Administration, rescue swimmer can go down and winch them off, depending on sometimes our boats will go ship to ship transfers okay. uh, with our vessels and then bring them to shore, depending on, again, the conditions. Um, but again, back to the all these islands we have, we have a lot of islands that are definitely not connected by ferries or bridges and stuff like that. So patients that have, I don't know, kidney stones or uh, appendix and things like that, that need to get to land. Um, in Sweden, there's one ambulance boat service, which is actually here in the archipelago of Gothenburg. Okay. So there's a lot of different places around the coast, uh, both from Gothenburg and especially north towards the Norwegian border or major lakes, where we do medical transport. If someone gets a, a medical issue, they call 911, 112. Um, the ambulance dispatch calls us and is like, okay, can you go get them? You know, yeah. So go getting them could be, you know, going up to an island with a dock sometimes with ambulance personnel, sometimes ourselves, and transporting them to the ambulance or, or to together with ambulance personnel to land so they can go further to a hospital. If it's pre-01 and you know, it's like heart attacks and things like that, you gotta treat them there, you know, stay and play um, kind of thing. Or the ambulance helicopter could be on in route and all that. And then there's like the people that are out hiking on these lovely islands and they fall and they trip on a granite crack and break their femur or something. And that's yeah. that's all hands on deck and all the boats and together with ambulance personnel, we you have to hike these people across rocks to get them to the boat, to get them to land. So wow. and there's a there's a large number of these medical transports, and those are just increasing because more and more people are trying to like, you know, go out and enjoy these islands. So yeah, a lot of alarms. <laughs>
and oh there's bonfires and all that kind of stuff. So, <laughs> yeah, again, volunteers doing these amazing things. Um, so what what else can we do? Um, I, this oh, is like a, you, yeah. like a like a jack of all trades on the ocean, man. You guys do a lot. Yeah, we do a lot, and it's um, it's really cool to look at the different models um, in my international work, both for the Swedish Sea Rescue Society and past work as a trustee for uh, the International Maritime Rescue Federation. You know, I've been in contact with almost every sea rescue organization in the world. It can be, you know, Fiji. Um, U.S. Coast Guard most definitely have good friends yeah. and contacts I work together with there where we collaborate and talk about different issues. Um, I'll get into that in a minute. Um, but okay. especially in Europe, we have a lot of uh, volunteer organizations that do similar, if not more, than we do here in Sweden. Um, in England, it's the Royal National Lifeboat, yeah. uh, RNLI. Um, in, in Holland, you have KNRM, and I will not pronounce their name in Dutch. Um, but they're volunteer <laughs> so organizations with with at incredible crew and great boats and in rough conditions that work together with their local uh, coast guards and uh, maritime administrations. Um, Finland, uh, there's so many today. Germany. Um, yeah. So it's really cool. And there are definitely volunteer organizations in other parts of the world, um, Virgin Islands, places where there's not a huge Navy or Coast Guard. And then, of course, you have all the Coast Guards, Uruguay, China, what have you. Yeah, um, definitely Australia and New Zealand and stuff. So it's great to talk with all these different ones and compare their organizational structure um, of how they deal with different SAR, maritime SAR, as well as land-based SAR and you know remote areas, um, and then their training techniques and a lot and boats and stuff like that. But which is really cool, you see obviously with boats is that you can't compare apples and oranges. You know, a boat that works here in Sweden is probably not the best in Holland and vice versa and stuff like that, depending on the waves, wind and all that. But I really, I think we have fantastic uh, rescue units and um, it's it works really well for that type of um, SAR and ambulance and all that kind of stuff that we do here. Um, internationally, is what again, my area, we started working in different projects and a lot of NGOs as well as uh, government agencies have different um, I say international projects, and yeah. there's some really cool initiatives that have been around the globe that I've been part of, a couple worth mentioning. Um, we started working a number of years ago um, with like greater diversity in maritime SAR. So there's okay. a specific project within the IMO as well as IMRF, International Maritime Rescue Federation, with women in SAR. Um, oh, so nice. Increasing, yeah, so increasing the number of women working in maritime SAR, or at least increasing awareness because different organizations have different percentages and, and different, you know, targets. Um, so had the opportunity to work in Africa, in Morocco with a lot of women from um, most of Af Africa, including West Africa. And I did like a women in SAR kind of SAR course together with the U United States Navy personnel, you know, going oh, through the I IMSAR. I like that. Um, yeah. So those programs like are really, really giving. Um, and a lot of them are like administrative, more classroom type. And then there's practical stuff of teaching people. Um, again, a lot of different organizations work with different projects. Um, and then one interesting area that has really affected Europe and affected pretty much the whole world um, is the issue of uh, mixed migration. Yeah. And yeah, 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 yeah. There's different reasons and I won't go into the reasons why people are moving from different geographical areas. Um, but 
over the you know, decades, really. But, you know, and, and you can go back way back in time. You can look at boat people and, and things like that, you know, whether it's from Haiti or Vietnam or Cuba, stuff that we're familiar with in the United States, um, different reasons for people moving and how to deal with that from a maritime SAR perspective. But in Europe, obviously, mixed migration, people coming over, like from Africa, you probably heard about from like, like Libya and then going to yeah. Italy and stuff like that. Um, so yes. in 2015, I had an opportunity to work together with um, uh, different organizations to like, okay, how can we as Maritime SAR tackle this enormous, let's say, issue or challenge together? Um, and obviously there's governmental responses and, and programs and projects, Mari Nostrum and, and Poseidon, these different EU names. Mm-hmm. Um, so together with the like European Border Guard, um, the Italian Coast Guard, um, and then the very fledgling NGOs um, that were working in the maritime SAR domain try to help save more people in the Mediterranean Sea. Yeah. So almost pretty much exactly, what was it now, eight years ago, 2015? Like to the yeah. day, I like boarded a ship down in Italy and cruised down into the SAR zone outside of Tripoli, Libya. Um, and my, my role was to work as like with mass rescue, um, rescue coordination and advising. Because a lot of these ships that were down there, including the governmental ships or Navy or, or Coast Guard, haven't, no one's really done a lot of mass rescue. And mass rescue is different in different situations. Um, it's usually characterized by not, in, not having enough resources. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. kind of the definition of mass rescue. So we looked at the different uh, vessels that were needed to transport the number of people that were in uh, international waters, first and foremost, yep. um, that needed to be saved and brought to a place of safety. Um, the Italian Coast Guard are experts at this. They've been doing it for decades. Um, at least um, it went from Lampedusa to all these different cases you may have heard of. Um, saving people in unseaworthy vessels yeah. with or without life flotation devices that can be in these major catastrophe um, where the boat capsizes, the raft punctures. Uh, it can be 50 people, 100, 200, 400 in the water, these incredible situations. So um, I worked together uh, with, with these different government uh, ships as well as the NGOs and was on board a, a boat that was um, chartered by uh, Medicine Sans Frontier or Doctors Without Borders. Okay. Um, so Doctors Without Borders wanted to enter the playing field as rescuers, an amazing organization that, you know, Nobel Prize and all that, and what they do when, when it comes to field hospitals around the world and and all these different projects, whether it's Ebola, what have you, they are experts in, no doubt. But all of a sudden they're going from a, a caring point of view, doctors, um, sanitation workers, all this kind of stuff, to a rescue perspective. So I wow. I came on board to talk a little about the rescue together with the, you know, the, obviously the ship's crew um, that were like an offshore supply ship that had done a bunch of rescues by being there at Ship of Opportunity. So I spent a month's time on that ship, particularly like doing um, sea rescues um, of different types of vessels outside of uh, Libya, and then um, the transport up to the different Italian ports that the MRCC Rome would uh, designate. And that was just a valuable experience. Um, the first time, I, the first time you're in a mass rescue situation, 
is is it's it's overwhelming. But yeah. going back to what I was talking about earlier, previously working in the cuckoo's nest or a mental you know hospital, yeah, it was like it wasn't that bad. I was like everyone is screaming, <laughs> it's chaos, it's life and death, literally people struggling and pulling themselves uh, up. It was like I could keep my cool. I felt like okay, good. I mean, obviously adrenaline's pumping and all that stuff. Yeah, but it was oh, yeah. hard to know to know what to expect. So, the first rescue I ever did with together with MSF as well as the Italian Coast Guard and and I think the British warship was there as well. You know, this this rubber boat. You see them in dawn. You know, like you're looking out and doing the full like binocular search. Uh, if the weather's calm, there's definitely going to be these different ding- rubber boats with 150, 200 people on them. So I saw this thing on the horizon. Oh, okay. There's an actual boat. It's like, okay, to be saved and you maneuver up to it. Um, try to create a buffer. Um, Doctors Without Borders was fantastic that they had these cultural mediators that spoke French or perhaps a, a local dialect in uh, Somalian or, or Eritrean or something. So okay. you could communicate with them with bullhorns and stuff to like, hey, this is a rescue boat. We're, you know, we're not going to hurt you. We're here to save you. Keep calm. Sit down. You know, trying to create some sort of order before the ensuing chaos of people trying to jump over because there's a magnet effect. If you see a rescue boat, they might try to jump overboard. Um, the boat will swamp. It can crush people. Um, all sorts of things like that. And that's wow. unfortunately what happened. There was one of the first rescues I was involved with was this: the boat punctured, which is a total crap. These, these, um, you know, I, I've heard boats. this actually. Yeah, and and now there's a whole science to it um, of of how to approach the different boats. But in the beginning, no one was good at it, and we saw a boat collapse, people in the water, no life jackets, and I'm standing there on the gun gun walls of this large off offshore supply ship, looking in the water, why literally hundreds of people are drowning in front of me. I'm just like, okay what to do now and like my first instinct is like some sort of bay watch like should i jump in <laughs> and just, you know swim around and just grab people because i have a life jacket and, but somehow something in my head said don't do it matt you're, uh, you're yeah. not going to survive that you're going to be pulled down in the masses it, it, you're you're just adding to the problem if you do that you'll be a rescuer in in trouble so I, I somehow stayed on it. I think I hung on the gun wall off the side of the ship, which has a freeboard of like, you know, it's a couple meters. It's really high. There's, you know, yeah. from surface level up and through like a rope, there's a pilot ladder, which people are jumping onto like, you know, like ants on a log kind of thing. It's, it's just a chaotic situation taking everything there that floats, like all life jackets we had on board, special cushions that were like, you know, floaty for four people. Yeah. Um, Throwing everything just to keep people afloat. If you can keep them floating high, then you, you have the time to you know launch the FRB as well as pulling people up in a somewhat orderly fashion. I just remember hanging off the gun wall, throwing things in, and lifting people up with some sort of Herculean strength, you know, one arm, He-Man <laughs> style, and throwing people that probably weighed like a buck ten or something, like like over the. I don't know what happened. All of a sudden, there's like twenty people behind me. I was like, oh, I guess I did that, you know. It was just, yeah, this whole idea that, yeah, you can keep calm in the crazy situation. That wasn't really happening, you know, in the chaos of it all, at least the first time. You know, you get used to it. And I don't want to say you get jaded, but you, you get into the flow of how the rescue should be. But in this particular instance of the first mass rescue I did, it was like where it went wrong. It was like, okay, let's not do that again, you know. So 
a lot of the standard operating procedures that are used today, again, yeah. eight years later, are are so methodically thought out by the people that are doing it day in, day out, both NGOs as well as some of the governmental stuff. So a big shout out to SOS Mediterranean, who do an, an amazing amount of rescues together with the Sea Watch and some of the other uh, NGOs. There are many others, um, uh, Proactiva, you name it. Anyway, they've worked and refined these mass rescue techniques of how to come in with the FRB boats, uh, fast rescue boats from the mothership and you know calm the situation, um, hand out life jackets in a preventative uh, fashion before things, excuse me, shit hits the fan. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, that, that technique wasn't so much available or thought out when I was first part of those missions, um, but we worked on refining them and, and you know, kind of ad hoc, making things better as they go. And, and the missions became more and more successful. Um, at that time, I was also had this kind of like, I don't want to say administrative, but like, you know, like the, the executive role as well, being a trustee for this International Maritime Rescue Federation, we would have meetings in Rome, you know, where everyone was in the, their white, white dress uh, uniforms, and I had my my tie. So I'd go from being on the ship and salty and bloody and all that, and then going into like you know the official meetings to actually discuss how are we going to take care of it. Where you know MRCC Rome was like you know, they really wanted more NGOs at that time because they needed wow. the ships, they needed the surface area to transport people. And, you know, otherwise, you're talking tens of thousands of people a day. It was insane. Um, so that being said, um, I was able to to work together with some of these people in an official capacity and, and the, say, the big brass meetings and talk about what's happening there, how different people can contribute together with, um, you know, the different types of uh, organizations, uh, Frontex, NGO, you name it. Wow. Um, the crazy part about, like... Um, the rescue of mass rescue operations and blue water operations in the Mediterranean or other places that are far from land yeah. is that, okay, there's a rescue phase, which can be intense. It can also be nice and calm and fantastic and everyone's happy, but then you have people to take care of on deck and it can be a hundred people. It can be 200, it can be three, four, five, six, seven. All of a sudden you have eight, 900 people on your aft deck of this supply ship or military vessel or what have you. And it's like, yeah. it's, it's, you know, like a crisis. It's a humanitarian crisis. A lot of people are injured. You know, they, they came on board being injured. Um, very common injuries can be crushing injuries, broken bones. Um, they can be sick. This is pre-COVID. So you're talking about like hepatitis or yeah. um, uh, tuberculosis, scabies, you know, Ooh. all sorts of, you know, all this different stuff. So it's like, it's a medical mission as, as well as humanitarian and feeding and watering and, and yeah. toilets and stuff like that. So it, the ship becomes like, you know, humanitarian mission after the rescue phase um, and then getting a, a, you know, a port of safety or place of safety designated by an MRCC could take some time. Um, there are some horrible accounts over the past seven years. Sometimes it takes 10 days or 20 or 40. Um, and you're, you're caring for people on board in open sea and you're not bringing them inside because that's where the crew is, you know. There's a different types of separation. So caring for people in a humanitarian way um, on board these different rescue vessels, whether governmental or non-governmental, is just as much of a component. And, and something that I think I was in my wheelhouse, too, besides the whole, you know, pulling people out of the water from salt water, but also caring together with professionals. 
And that's what a lot of the government agencies did too, because it would be like hospital ships and stuff. So yeah, that was like my intro into um, like mass rescue when it came to mixed migration. And part of it, I was wearing the Swedish Sea Rescue life jacket, yeah, um, as well as you know my lo logos and and affiliation and stuff, and thinking, can we as a NGO in Sweden contribute to this challenge? You know, again, both Italian Coast Guards and others wanted help in this dealing with it back then in fifteen and sixteen and so forth. Um, so you're like, yeah, but it's blue water operations. Our boats are more near shore archipelago we're going to need a larger rescue ship in that case and so forth so this is in june of 2015 so at the same time the more people were starting to flee from syria and yep. iraq iran uh, afghanistan and so forth but mostly from syria during 2015 um, from turkey to greece so you had this you know pretty small body of water Cruising over the Mediterranean. Yeah. Yeah. The Aegean Sea. We actually, yeah. sorry, I'm going to cut you off real quick. Please. Just because I, one of, um, we actually had a guest on here. His name is Jose Pastor, and he's yeah. a rescue swimmer from Spain. And he yeah, was okay. talking a lot about this and his like side of it because it was all volunteer for you guys going out to get it. So yeah. to hear it from another aspect is blowing my mind again. Yeah. Like hundreds yeah. of people, thousands of people in the water. Just I'd 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 like to yeah, but I'd definitely like to listen to his account of things definitely, because um, it's 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 a whole different scale. And again, some it's kind of like the towing thing. Like some of them were like, once you've done it a few times, it's like okay, it's maybe not a big deal, but you're still dealing with fifty or hundreds of lives. That that this is something what kind of a lessons identified or lessons learned. Yeah. You know, say I've done it like 50 times or something and, and getting the hang of it, the method, methodology and what to do in certain situations. It's always the first time for the person in distress. Oh, yeah. They haven't, yeah, 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 they yeah. haven't done it before. So the next group <laughs> you meet, that's their first time probably, one, being on the ocean, <laughs> yeah. being in a rubber raft or a fishing boat or what have you, you know, whatever the met method of uh, transportation is. And then in being in chaos and being scared for their lives after already going through a horrible ordeal of whatever they're fleeing for their lives in the first place. So that was one thing. And I definitely like to listen to his perspective. So Greece started happening. The Aegean was the numbers were going through the roof of people moving from Turkey to Greece. Um, so coming home back to Sweden, I talked with uh, my boss, Rolf, and uh, said, you know, Libya, the central Mediterranean, that's not for us. But perhaps maybe the Greek islands could be something we could contribute in a positive way as Swedish Sea Rescue. I mean, the Greek islands are, are an archipelago. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of Swedes are very familiar with the lovely beach resorts that are on these islands. <laughs> you know, that was that was their life lifeblood and, and livelihood of all these people that worked on Lesbos and islands. And, you know, people would fly there on charters and be there in, in the lovely Greek sun. So um, we talked with the Greeks. Um, so of course, we, everything has got to be official. We're not just going to rock up and, and like, hey, sea rescue to the, you know. So I, I started with, I wrote an email to Rear Admiral in the Hellenic Coast Guard, and Greek Rear Admiral, don't Google that. But um, <laughs> Roger so, that. <laughs> yeah. um, so, and, and they were like, yes, uh, Matthew, uh, 
we would yes we would like assistance thank you very much like oh okay that sounds good so we brought that you know kind of assurance of that the greeks would like us there to our board our board said okay the greeks want us there then maybe we can do a mission there um so we mobilized um i say a, like a uh, yeah, a catastrophe mission from Sweden very quickly. We're talking a number of weeks. So myself, together with a captain, uh, Mikkel Hinnerson, uh, my colleague here at Swedish Sea Rescue, who works with sea safety mostly, we went to the Greek islands and did a recon. We, we went to Lesbos, uh, Chios, and Samos, these different islands in the Aegean that were getting hit hardest by the number of people and the number of deaths. So we went to I want to say we went to Lesbos first. And Lesbos is the one in the media that you made many of your listeners might have heard about, uh, especially with Moria camp, one of the camps okay. that most of the people, you're talking about tens of thousands of people per day at that time in the summer of 2015. And it was like I was standing on the cliff on, on Lesbos with binoculars and just watching rubber boats one after the other coming across this whatever, a couple nautical miles straight. So you can oh just watch the boats leaving and then it's like, okay, I have time to eat a euro and then I can go out and do the rescue. It was really strange. It was almost like, oh torture. my God. Yeah. But on Lesbos, you had the Greek Coast Guard, obviously, that's their domain. Um, yep. Then you had Frontex, which for many listeners know is the European Border Guard, which is comprised of many different countries' nautical assets. It can be okay. Latvian Sea Police, it can be Swedish Coast Guard, which were there. And so, Frontex boats um, were there as well as border protection for stopping smuggling, um, but as well, of course, search and rescue and did a countless number of rescues. Um, but on Lesbos, you also had, I think at one time you could count 1,000 non-governmental organizations. Oh my God. What most of those were unorganized or semi-organized people on land that wanted to help with clothing, baby formula diapers, you name it, as well as the official ones like UNHCR, you know, the United Nations High Commission for you know refugees and so forth. Yeah. So there's and Red Cross and and like Doctors Without Borders and, and what have you. So there's a lot of legitimate ones, and you had a lot of say illegitimate or semi gray area organizations. Everyone wanting to help in a most unorganized, organized, chaotic manner. Wow. So it's like okay, Lesbos is not for us. <laughs> and I met some cool people and some people that their heart was in the right place and eventually got organized. Like when we're talking about sea rescue assets, because a lot of yeah. people just like rocked up with a rib boat and like, Hey, I'm a rescuer. And a lot of them got thrown in jail because <laughs> you just oh. can't rescue. If you're not tasked by the official authorities then you have no business going out there. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 So, there was a lot so of there's documentation that. checks. There's, oh, there's everything. You oh have my to have gosh. Your ducks in a row. You can't just rock up to another country expecting to be a SAR agency, you know? Um, oh, so yeah. Lesbos really wasn't for us. Um, we, we, Mikil and I went to the place on Samos, the island of Samos. Uh, anyone, I definitely recommend visiting there. Amazing people, um, beautiful topography, amazing beaches, you name it. Warmer but, water than Sweden. More and more water than Sweden. <laughs> but I'll, I have to say this about Samos is that the weather in the winter, it's chaos. Because you have these pretty high mountains, like whatever thousands of feet. And the yep. catabatic winds that come off them can blow up the hurricane strength. So it's like 
oh, it's all of a sudden 12 foot swell from nowhere, you know? <laughs> it's almost like lake effect in Lake Erie or something, or it's just insane how quickly it gets chaotic. So oh, wow. that being said, we went, we did this, uh, we did a trip to Samos. We were welcomed by the Coast Guard. We were welcomed by, um, uh, say, the local police department. We did a tour of the hospital. Um, we talked with the different officials on the islands that were like, yes, you can come here um, and you can set up camp. And we also looked, who, what are the rescue assets on Samos? You had the Hellenic Coast Guard, the Greek Coast Guard. They had a couple of older boats. Um, and then you had a couple different Frontex assets, but like one or two boats of, that were not dimensioned for mass rescue. We're talking like a 20 foot rib or something. I was like, oh, well, you got 50 people you got to save. You know what I mean? So went back to Sweden, um, did the recon, said Samos is the place. There's a, a place on Samos called the Coast of Death. Okay. It's, it's on the northern <laughs> part of the island. And it's always been known that because it's like cliffs that go straight up. You know, oh, that right on. Yeah, the yeah. waves crashing. And when you have a north wind and waves crashing against, it's really difficult. One thing that's really difficult on Samos is that you have, um, I think it was I say a monastery on top of the hill, uh, oh, on wow. top of this mountain. And unfortunately, the monastery has a light. You know, it's like one of the only light sources on this northern part of the island. And when people leave Turkey in a rubber boat in the middle of the night, they aim towards the light land. And it goes straight into the cliff. So it's almost like oh. this way to certain death, you know? <laughs> so when we heard that and we stood on the coast of death and we're like, oh, Samos is the place. This is where we can make a difference. You know, Mick and I looked at each other, blue water, big cliffs. It's an archipelago. Dude, we're setting up shop here. If the Greek authorities will want us to be here. So everything went check. Yes, yes, yes. Went back to Sweden, um, got our boats ready. We had like two 12 meter boats. I, I don't remember like the foot equivalents. You guys can yeah, look it up. It's about good. 38, yep, yep. 40 foot double water good. jet boats. We said we're sending two units there, all weather lifeboats, Victoria class. They're pretty awesome. Check them out. Um, why two boats? Well, if we get in trouble in this foreign place, foreign country, it's not necessarily we get help from the Greek authorities in bad weather. Yeah. So we want to have redundancy. So the whole idea behind this, this mission was like, there's two boats and one crew and you're going to work in, in tandem, never leech, leave each other's side. One goes in and does the rescue. The other one's on standby to help the rescue boat going in, in case. Yeah. So that's yeah. the idea. That was the whole idea going into it. So we shipped these two boats, 12 meters on like flatbed trucks with a convoy exceptional all the way through Europe down to uh, <laughs> to Piraeus, you know, outside of Athens, the, ma the major harbor there. And the Greek Coast Guard kind of like, oh, you showed up. <laughs> <laughs> so we're like at, at the gates of Piraeus, like with two rescue boats. And they're like, oh, no, what do we do with these Swedes? <laughs> well, you we told we them could, they could come and now they're come. really here. I have an email. <laughs> <laughs> you know but it's like some of it was a little bit lost in translation but some of it was like okay but they looked i mean they, they grilled our dp at the time um captain Ar uh, andreas arvidson um they they grilled him really hard about our procedures our safety all that and he passed the test to, you, know, you know but also looking at these boats um the two victoria classes they're like oh these are serious sar units that we don't have Oh, so they were nice. like, yeah. So they were like, oh yeah, this looks good. You go ahead, Sweden. Feel free. 
sailed to Samos. So within 28 days of the decision from the board, when we said, let's go to Samos, we set up station on Samos. So, Holy smoke. Yeah, so this was that's like... fast. That's the flexibility of our NGO, our particular organizations. Like if we say tar- turn starboard, we turn starboard in a quick amount of like, you know, obviously risk assessment and yeah. and all different types of risk assessment and, and safety. But then the, the next thing is like, it's back to our volunteers. It's like, okay, we got to put a crew on this boat or two <laughs> boats um, from based on a, you know, a volunteer, you know, pool of people. And the whole of Europe pretty much knows about the crisis and it's, uh, it's in the media every day. Um, everyone wants to help, like I said, on Lesbos. Yeah. Um, in Sweden, they're having this gala on like one of the largest indoor stadiums. Like everyone give, you know, give to Red Cross, you know, a catastrophe aid kind of thing. Yeah. And we announced that we're going to be there so we can try to create like, you know, a funding opportunity because we don't want to take uh, funding from our central organization um, that, that goes to our Swedish operations or, me- or membership money. So we're able to do some sort of, um, you know, like, hey, call this number and donate, what have you. So I'm trying to crew, put crew together for this um, organization. And someone, I don't know who, put my email address as like, Point talk to Matthew if you want to be on board. <laughs> I, I kid you not, 2,000 applications within 48 hours. Oh and it wasn't just God. it wasn't just from our organization. It was from like you know Red Cross Stockholm or you know I'm a nurse in Denmark. Like yeah, cool for you. I'm trying to put together a crew. So oh man, it was insane. So I looked obviously for wow. people in our organization that were professional mariners. We we had to have a pretty high degree of you know um, the people that had navigation skills, obviously but also knew about stability of boats and knew how to do stability calculations because you're talking about putting whatever 50 some people on our 12 meter boats. Um, yeah. So that when it comes to the coxswains, we're looking for a higher degree that we normally um, require for driving our boats. Looking for people that had passed uh, foreign experience, whether it's United Nations, uh, military, police, ambulance, doctors at borders, so forth. Anyone that's, excuse again, that's the term, been in the shit, you know, have been in, in a place totally. where that that it's not everything that the safety network of Sweden's not going to exist there in the same way. So I'm looking for people that weren't adverse uh, or, or have a problem of being uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, put these amazing teams together. And from the very first shout, um, this team of, of highly professional volunteers, um, they go down there. We put about five or six people on each boat. Um, to man up a little bit there's not a lot of space on these boats and we want to have you know the right amount of crew but you can't put 20 people on this boat because you also have to save 20 people or 50 people right or whatever. right yeah uh, we also had journalists on board you know there's so oh, many journalists wow. during this whole time and they were helpful in the way that they could tell the story and show pictures of sea rescue and promote that so that yeah. was good in the beginning um for sure um so the f- very first shout they get you know there's people on the rocks uh, that were really inaccessible. There was a, a boat that capsized. You got 30 some people in the water. I mean, you're talking full catastrophe again, but in an archipelago. So they buzz around the corner from the harbor of Bafi on Samos, around the corner, past these cliffs, and get to the point. And it wasn't like you get a, like a last known position from the, you know, the, the U.S. from the from the Greek Coast Guard or the MRCC. It's like, yeah, you go past the church and uh, <laughs> on the and there's like a 
that we call that Johnny Rock, you know, like it was like, okay, you know, so luckily we had like, you know, Greek liaison officers on board, you know, from the yeah. Coast Guard as well as the local rescue team. And they could say, yeah, I go past the Church Rock over there, you know, like this is really weird way of operating, but we got used to it the Greek way pretty oh quick. Oh my gosh. Hey, there's a yeah. wishing well over there. Make a left at the wishing yeah. well. Yeah, totally. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know where the priest had a summer home? You know, like, oh, yeah, of course. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Past the rock that looks like Abraham Lincoln <laughs> or Pythagoras in this case. You know, but anyway, they, oh, they do this fantastic funny. mission and um, they, they were able to save a lot of, a lot of people from the water. Um, for anyone listening that want to see part of this rescue, um, yeah. it's available actually on YouTube. Um, I think it's called 46 Saved or something like that. I, I'll, maybe we'll send the link in if it's possible together with yeah, the podcast. Send it but to anyway, me and I'll see what I can do with it. It gives you an idea, a visual picture of what the rescue conditions look like um, with the crew, with the boat bring brand new to this and also my fantastic colleague uh, frederick uh, forschman who i we do uh, mass rescue courses together with the u.s coast guard um and his reaction as being the coxswain on board you know frederick you know he gets hit so concentrated in the moment doing what he's supposed to do leading through a crisis and after it's done and unload the people in the place of safety um you can see him break down the emotions oh, wow. that just well up through him is is incredible and it was like that that's the feeling that encapsulate being in that type of rescue in the first time so i recommend this to all the people that are listening i use this particular video for trying to explain uh mass rescue or mixed migration mass rescue to non-sea rescuers um i try to talk with government officials a lot um and a shout out to uh the, the San Remo Institute, which is the Institute International Institute for Humanitarian Law. So they talk okay. about humanitarian law cases, and it's a lot of uh, case workers from UNHCR, the United Nations, as well as different uh, marine um, and uh, migration ministers from students and participants from around the world. So I, I showed this video. We talk about what what is sea rescue really? That's beyond the numbers. Because what you can read and whether it's New York Times, The Guardian, um, whatever newspaper, it's like, oh, 15 people, 50 people were rescued. Oh, 100 people showed up in Key West or what have you. You know what I mean? Right, it's just right. numbers. It's yeah. numbers, but it's not what it feels like for the SAR personnel. It's not what it feels yeah. like for the people in distress. So anyway, yeah. cool video. We get the, the Greek see that the Greek Coast Guard sees that we can do these things and we build upon this experience. So I'm, I'm, I'm scrambling trying to get crew together and trying to build, get even more trust from the Greek authorities that we can be here and be longer on the island of Samos. Because um, the whole idea is this is like in October. So it's, it's starting to be there winter or fall. And again, it's not as warm and beautiful as the, as the brochure says. The winds yeah. start kicking up. Every single mission is more or less like a really difficult one. So one that sticks out in my mind um, really really strange situation i had crew that would fly from sweden to the island of samos and then the new crew would come in and we tried to like i guess you would say stagger them in a way that the old yep. crew could train them on the new one obviously they're oh nice they're unfamiliar waters um here's here's our area of action this is our sar area we go around the corner this is where we buy our euros and lattes 
and <laughs> which is another weird thing because you're in a crisis area around the corner but when you go back home we were staying in hotels and eating like kings you know and queens yeah like we yeah. have to we have to feed ourselves to take care of our bodies and and minds and then all of a sudden the alarm goes or we go out and check things out um and just to let everyone know the crew was on for two weeks because my experience in the central mediterranean i was there for about a month i was like yeah that's a lot of rescue that's intense <laughs> you got you that's got a long go, time you got to go home because you're on call two weeks and there's going to be something almost every day if not five a day or what have you uh depending on what the weather's like and so anyway we we shifted out the crew we were flipping we were doing a like, staggering and showing this new crew um the north side this death coast like i said coast of death we're doing uh boarding exercises where the two ships would come together you know just to come together tie up and talk to each other and for some reason the boarding didn't go as correct or something you know we're just getting the feel for the boats or something so we we turn off engines power down the engines and start talking to each other um we're on the north side of the island talking to each other uh, while we're standing on deck these different crews and all of a sudden we hear this cry for help like a literal like help help in the distance you know it's kind of like in the late e or say uh, early evening yeah. um sun setting so we were just thinking about doing a quick exercise and going home and getting rest before the next show so we hear this help help and it's getting louder and we're looking up the cliffs and you know it's like maybe like whatever ugh, i don't want to say a thousand feet but it's a couple hundred meters at least you know and we're looking with the binoculars and also we see a small group of people that are stranded on like this cliff ledge you know with this like really scrubby brush and you know so they're kind of in the trees kind of in the brush and we see them so it's like okay well there's there's people that obviously and there's when you look at the coast of where the sea meets the cliffs there's rubber boats like that are just crashed and and torn apart that are like you know discarded because it's hard to know like you have to identify is that a fresh boat or is that oh that's been there for a month or you know so wow you kind of have to like you know chart it out a little bit so anyway we didn't see any fresh boats but we saw people up there so obviously they had made land sometime and yeah. they they couldn't get out from this predicament or this you know the topography was way too difficult so we get the boats um we're able to slowly like come in and these are water jet water jet boats and so they can go in really shallow waters the draft is like less than a meter you know so wow go, go yeah it's really fantastic maneuverability there, there wasn't the sea state was fine so we can nose in very slowly but first we sent a rescue swimmer over you know um who was actually a rescue swimmer for the uh, for the Swedish helicopters again oh, nice. I was looking nice. I was looking for specialists in different areas to try to put you know plug the gaps and bring a certain set of skills so a very good friend of mine rescue swimmer Jens Samuelsson for the Swedish maritime administration he swam over um you know took off his gear ran pretty much did some mountain climbing with his wetsuit <laughs> and took the snorkel out but it's it's still pretty warm um and established contact with them and realize okay it's a, it's a couple different families uh, mostly you know men women and children uh grandmothers and so forth around 17 or so these people and they tell us that uh, they sent two of the men to try to climb and find safety or or help you know and that's a, that's a big climb we're looking up there like okay well maybe we might be doing recovery after this so yeah yet we come back we get able, able to go with the boats into the cliff and it's a climb we're talking a couple hundred feet of climbing up through this scrub brush loose jagged rocks really crap rock 
it's not like you're you're setting like really good rock climbing or, or a path down like a mountain goat um so we get up to them and we're you know obviously do triage like okay try to establish contact there the whole group was from syria um i found a, a boy um probably like around 15 or something like that and also and he yeah. spoke pretty good english i was like okay um ahmad uh, um, or Ahmed, excuse me. I was like, we'll talk. You talk and I talk and you can translate for the group. You know, hey, good. We've established comms and this is what we're going to do. We're going to slowly, one by one, try to get you down the cliffs to that rescue boat and take you to the safe harbor. Um, so anyway, they, they say, okay, they're in agreement. It's, it's getting darker, but it's like, okay, we still have some light, but we're burning daylight. And so we have to, the combination of safety, headlamps, Oh, yeah. we have climbing equipment, you know, harnesses, or we have to like, you know, repel these people off. Um, but we we find that, like eventually we make our own little kind of goat trail down. That's that should be for most people safety to 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 get down. And I use the 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 boy as the translator to describe things. He's first to go down, and he yells back up, and we, and we create a chain of communication explaining our, our whole procedure. Um, and this is a laborious process, even if it's seventeen people. It, we're pretty high up. And one by one, and all of a sudden, you, you all, all of a sudden they hand you a baby. You know, it's like, oh, okay, I need my own balance. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, okay, I have a baby in one arm and I have a grandmother in the other. And I'm like, okay, wait, stay there. And, and we would do like the thing, like I would climb down, I would hand the baby off to someone else, and then they would hand it to me. And, and you know, this whole kind of procedure of getting down the cliff. And then it's dark and it's starting, it's headlamp time. And we're getting the majority of people off, but you know, it's, we get the people that are fast and easy, quick, and then get some of the, and then maybe in the middle before it's too dark, get the, like the vulnerable small children down. So yep. it's not dark, dark, and they're not scared. Luckily in the Sea Rescue Society, we have like a, like a teddy bear. You know, we all have different mascots and mascots, mascots. Yeah. And like, you have a teddy bear, <laughs> teddy bear with a Swedish Sea Rescue life jacket. That right. was just as important as my like first aid kit. It's like this kid screaming in my arms, here's a teddy bear be happy i'm gonna get you to the boat you know so oh yeah so we get them down slowly and then finally like the last person like the grandmother or something the one that's the least mobile of the group and that that was full-on harnesses and repelling her and setting up anchors and getting her down the cliffs and she's screaming you know like crazy but we have this situation under control and so we get everyone on board and we're sitting, they're down in the transport area. They can pretty much all fit on one boat. Um, and we're sitting in this transport area and just not saying a word. I mean, they're, they're calm now. They're, they're, they're almost falling asleep. And I'm talking with the boy and his mother. And like, you know, finally, like, how long have you been here? Like two days. They've been oh, on that wow. cliff. They've been on that cliff for two days. Like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So. We're sitting there in this, um, like this, just feeling like this vibration going through us, like looking at each other. I'm looking at one of the Greek rescuers we had with us, who's a consultant who did a lot of the mountain rescue stuff, uh, Yannis, um, and looking at the rescue swimmer, Jens, and like, we're not saying a word, but we're just feeling the flow. Like, man, that was just, it wasn't clockwork, but we just, we handled that situation in, a, in an unfamiliar territory with fairly unfamiliar, like rescue techniques in a in a different country you know it's like and save these people so it was just this amazing feeling like getting in that flow state um was probably one of the more memorable experiences from that mission we get to the we get to the port and 
um, you know, help the people you know, that needed medical attention, the ambulance and so forth. And a lot of the aid workers first uh, was a Red Cross and Doctors Without Borders and UHNR and Frontex. They met them and they get them into shelter and not not more than like an hour after we made port, like around midnight or something like this storm comes in like a hurricane. It was a, it, and there's there's film of it. It's like blowing Beaufort nine or something and wind is going sideways. And we we're just like, oh, they would not have survived that night. I mean, they would have gotten blown off the rock, let alone. Wow. So it just felt like it was so meant to be that we went out there and it was like a testament of the way the rescues evolved out there it was a lot of time like seeing, hearing, smelling. Um, you know, it, it wasn't just waiting for a radio call with last known coordinates. It was, yeah. you know, being part of proactive in it. So after that rescue, you know, I walked into the, that next morning after a very good night's sleep. Um, I'm walked sure into, <laughs> walked into the, the Greek Coast Guard and they, they literally stood up and applauded like Swedish super team. Like, yeah, OK, cool. Wow. You know, like we, we got that. We got that respect. And they're like, you know what? The liaison officer, he doesn't need to be with anymore. It's like, he, we, we know you're capable. So this is like in November or whatever, 2015. Our mission lasted from, I would say, October 15 to around June of 2016. Um, so smoke. we did during the, the toughest like winter months with a really bad acclimate weather. Um, you know, our crew and our uh, rescue boats were able to save uh, around 2,000 people during this mission. Um, oh it was pretty incredible. Gosh. So one of the most incredible things I have to reconnect about that story, this family, is that, I mean, at least like maybe a half year later, like, you know, we had, we had taken a lot of pictures and stuff like that. And one of these pictures ran in a Swedish newspaper of um, a rescuer, sea rescuer called Nils. And it was together with the boy that was helping me translate. It was a picture of like Nils was in the Mediterranean helping Syrian refugees, something like that. Okay. Yeah. This family saw the picture in the newspaper because they had made it to Sweden by then. Oh, so wow. they went from Greece, you know, after being saved, whatever, six months later, the journey that took them through Europe eventually ended up in a small town in Sweden. I don't want to say where, but they ended up in the city and they saw it and they took, they made contact with Nils like, hey, that's us. And we were reunited with this family. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. So it was really cool. Like that, you know, and that was throughout the whole mission. We would reconnect with these different people that we'd saved. But this is one of the ones that like we saw them in Sweden again. And we heard from them later at this time when we, we met with them in Sweden is that um, the grandmother that I said that we had to repel and save and all that. And the mother, they hadn't seen each other for two years because of the war in Syria. Oh, wow. They were traveling, you know, across from Syria, across Turkey. They ended up on the same rubber boat and were reunited on the beach in Turkey and ended up on this cliff together after years of not being together because of war. No way. I was like, this one of these coincidences. Like, this is just not true, you know? So it the whole rescue just took on a whole different dimension. And that definitely being able to reconnect with people was insane. Um and that was the strange thing with our mission is that when we save people in the, in the, from the jaws of death of this coast of death and then bring them around the corner into harbor, they would get help. And then later that spring, um, like people would be, they, they started making the camps a little different, closing the camps and make them a little bit more like detention centers, like you mentioned, the pre-mentioned uh, Moria on Lesbos. Um, yeah. And that changed the aspect of our mission there. It's like, okay, 
we're sea rescuers. We want to save people and hopefully they can go further. We're not there to judge on their legal status or what have you. We're there to save yeah. lives. Sar and Sar only. Um, but it, it made it more difficult for us to bring people and save them and bring them to detention. And it was like, okay, this is maybe not our mission. By then in the spring of 2016, more Frontex resources had arrived to the island of Samos. The Italian Coast Guard, which are without a doubt the experts at this, um, they arrived and we talked with them. Uh, the German, uh, say like sea police from a certain city with very good SAR units, they arrived as well. So we were able to phase out and have an exit strategy for our part in this. Wow. So one of the things that kind of hit me there, like when we're going saving people, like I think it was in February or something of 2016, was like, I, I would go up to the camps and like, you know, meet the people we saved the day before. And, you know, sometimes the kids would be playing outside and like, you know, we would throw the ball or there was like clowns without borders and all these types of entertainment or trying to keep, keep the people like, you know, psychologically happy after this great ordeal. Um, and I met this kid, uh, boy, I think he was from Afghanistan. Um, he was in the camp behind the fence. I couldn't get on that side of the fence, but I just said, you know, hey, how are you? Is your family okay after yesterday? after this boat ride and all that and he's like yes 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 uh, and he's he said something that it still hits me to my core so thank you for saving my life and i was like yeah it feels great i've heard that a lot and i've been in the privileged position to hear that a lot um through all these different rescues whether it's here in sweden which is rare you know yeah. it's mostly saving people from the lips of inconvenience and not the jaws of death <laughs> but in mass rescue situations there's a lot of people in praying and thank you sir and oh thank you fantastic so this little boy said thank you for saving my life yeah absolutely it's no problem he said, thank you for treating me like a human oh wow and I, and I oh man i was dumbfounded i was just like first there was like a young boy that said something so profound but also that it hit me so hard as like not only do we save people, but we treat them with dignity. And it's the way that you save people is like, it's just as important as that he felt like he was, you know, I don't know, identified as a person, as something that's a living being with, with, a, yeah. with a soul and a future and all that. And man, I, I think about that all the time. Thank you for like, treating me like a human. I was like, dude, mission accomplished. You know, this is it time to throw yeah. out the banner? You know, it's like, it was just like, oh, we did the right thing at the right time at the right place with the right people. That was, that was kind of the mission there. Um, so since Dang, then I've been doing everything in our power, um, you know, we saved a lot of people. We worked, built up a lot of good partnerships and still many of those partnerships live on today. And I kind of feel like it's our duty. Those of us that have been involved with mass rescue situations, whether it's mixed migration or whatever is to take some of that, you know, knowledge of, standard operating procedures and the pure sea rescue stuff and explain it further um and, and to pretty much anyone who listens um so mass rescue operations um, are usually pretty far down on the the agenda of priorities for different maritime administrations yeah. it's kind of like thought of like costa concordia or large cruise ships that maybe run aground or you know maybe uh, 17 crew on a, on a vessel that's taking on water so it, it's not usually it's not high in hundreds the yeah and it's yeah. not usually hundreds and hundreds of people yeah exactly and 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 we say this like in our courses and when we talk to people it's like it's not a matter of if it's when 
you know, all yeah. these different places are going to get affected by some sort of mass rescue. And hopefully it's one that can be taken care of in, a, in an orderly manner. Um, and there's all these different case studies to look at um, in the maritime world, as well as mixed migration. And a lot of lessons learned and lessons identified that have cross-pollination. Um, so again, I try to any po possible opportunity I have to talk about MROs with maritime professionals and how they should look at it, I definitely jump on that. Um, together with U.S. Coast Guard people, um, where we teach a course um, that's called the MRO Subject Matter Expert Group or Subject Matter Expert Course, and that's through the IMRF. Um, where it's a couple days of just getting down some of the details of what an MRO can look like and try to apply it to your own, say, operational sphere and your country and, and what, it, what, your, what are your assets and what are the possible problems and so forth. Um, here in Sweden, our little Swedish Sea Rescue Society, non-governmental, yeah. we've <laughs> organized uh, mass rescue conferences for the IMRF. We've had five different uh, mass rescue conferences where we get, um, say, not just subject matter experts, but also people, captains, um, administrators that have been involved in different case studies. And we get them into the auditorium here in, in, at our offices here and, and present them, you know, PowerPoint, giving speeches, um, but really try to get down to the nitty gritty of what actually happened that you may not read in the official reports. Um, yeah. and and just get people talking about the subject. And that, that way, when they come home from Sweden to whatever, Malaysia or, or Peru or what have you, that they can start thinking about it and applying some of the things that they learned here with us. So it's super cool. And one of the things we do for this conference is that the first day is a Sunday usually. It's, it's a practical exercise. You know, a lot of us go to different maritime conferences and there'll be a helicopter winching one. It's probably you that's going down and like yeah. showing people, this is what rescue swimming looks like. Um, so we do that here, but people rock up with their, you know, their blazers and their ties. So I'm like, yeah, okay, but you're part of the exercise. I'm like what? Well, do you want to be on the MRCC? Do you want to be on shoreside response? Or do you want to be on the boats or in the life raft? And they're like, oh, I want to be on the boats. I'm like, yeah, sure. So it's usually like a hundred or so people that are, that come to the conference, 150 or something. They, the first day of our conference, the, what they call the G series for Gothenburg, they, they go out and we do a large mass rescue exercise and have different roles. That way, when we go in and talk about the case studies in the auditorium, we just experience something that's, you know, as close as possible in an exercise yeah. situation, you know, thrown together. So it's a lot of fun and to try to touch people as many many people as possible with MRO stuff. So that's kind of my main area of focus when it comes to international right now. Wow. Matthew. Holy yeah. smoke. That yes. is that is crazy. That's awesome. Thanks. I love it. Good. It's good work. There's a lot of good people doing good work like that. What you're bringing to the table and everything you've done is is incredible. Uh I'm buddy, I'm blown away. I really am. Cool. Wow. Uh, it's it's again it's it's an honor and privilege to be able to talk and and speak to it and um i know i talk a lot and and in <laughs> no way am i trying to be like boasting about things i just want to get like get things out here and i think that's what the, the i guess the the real advantage of this type of podcast and your work here is like it's just getting different stories out there um and it doesn't have to be in a report or you know accident uh, evaluations right. but it's just no. it's just the talk uh and hearing it straight from the horse's mouth as it were and, yeah uh, 
Yeah. That's why I do this. Cool. <laughs> uh, and more power to this, man. I hope, uh, I hope this has been uh, somewhat, you know, uh, give something to someone out there. Man, I, I've enjoyed it immensely. So thank you big time. So I, a couple questions, if you don't mind. Yeah, um, please. So I, I'm going to back up just a little bit to you have 2,400 people that volunteer for your service. Yeah. How do people get trained? Like what's the training yeah. involved? And and we don't have to go super long. You no, have to go but, through the whole thing. But, um, yeah. you know, like, like people ask all the time, it's like, what does it take to be a volunteer for the Swedish Sea Rescue? It's like, yeah, it takes time and heart. And I mean, it takes dedication. It's like, and that sounds like a very cliche answer, but it's like, yeah, I mean, because we're going to teach you the rest. A lot of people, they have a maritime background. They maybe have a boat themselves. They like to go sailing or what have you. Some people come from fire, all that kind of stuff. But when you get in here, it's like, okay, you're a student for a bit. You're, you know, like the, the, the green greenhorn and you're going to be on deck and maybe just watch, you know, maybe not even get to tie up. And then, you know, you go through your like not proficiency, you know, kind of like Cub oh, Scouts nice. or something. Yeah, then, yeah, yeah. Okay. But um, but then, you know, when after you've proven probably at least a season or something as a student or, a, or whatever you want to say, um, then then you apply for a central course. And the first central course is the we call the basic safety. So it's a three day basic safety where first aid, maritime survival with life rafts and all that. Like putting on the suits, the six hour, the survival suits, emergency suits, um, flares, la la la, and then the firefighting. And we say firefighting, it's, it's really just putting out fires with different types of handheld stuff, not so much going in with full masks. We're not, the, we're not putting people out to sea in like, you know, big cargo ships. So the three day thing that, and once they become, they do this, the basic safety, it's like, okay, you can be like probably a sea rescuer as well as, when I say sea rescue, you can put on the life jacket, you get the name tag. And then you start doing, there's a lot of local exercises. So all these different training modules, like most of us have in our organizations going through yeah. the different modules, whether it's first aid or towing, um, SAR, search and all that. We do a lot of local trainings. So back Sweet. to that 14,000 times leaving dock, 6,000 of those are training exercises. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So all the wow. local stations do local training, local training, local training. Uh, that's, that's to an approved standard within us, as well as the Swedish Maritime Administration, um, that's called basic SAR. Um, and then there are specialized courses centrally that we have that are like specific to uh, that type of uh, boat units uh, handling, you know? Um, yeah. That we, oh, you go to that island in that training course to learn how to drive that boat. Uh, oh, and that's wow, like a three-day okay. course, or yeah. uh, dynamic navigation, or leadership, or on-scene coordinator, uh, you know, stuff like that. So there's, there's a plethora of uh, students and courses. Um, and I would say at least a thousand centrally run courses um, each yeah, year. That's a or lot. Least, or a thousand students go through the courses of different oh. uh, grades. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a big organization Jeez, and you can't oh, get man. this training anywhere. So it's like, so like, what do you want to do in your free time? It's like a lot of people love football, soccer, and uh, you know, whatever different sports is like yeah but can you get on a boat and do these fantastic things maybe get winched by a helicopter um <laughs> but then you got to put it in the hours and and you know there's the whole volunteer mm -hmm. life cycle it's like you know we don't want people to stay for two years or one year for that matter it's like we're get, we're going to invest in you hopefully you're going to stay longer yeah. and what just as important as the training is that like it's a good culture at the station that's like that you rock up and 
don't have the same experience as I had 20 years ago when you try to become a volunteer. You're like, nah, dude, we don't need you. Like, <laughs> Bro, we want people to be I inclusive and all that. You. No, yeah. exactly. You know, cut your hair and uh, grow a beard. <laughs> You know, you know what? I think there's a song about that. I, yeah, it's, uh, my hair. It, yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. Man, so that's awesome. So, a lot of good central training, a lot of good local training, and um, yeah, just and just being on station and hanging out with people, it, it takes time. And but it's also so fantastic to be able to like be on a beautiful place. Luckily, as we all know, most sea rescue places they're located in amazing waterfront places, <laughs> so. It's not bad to be out in some of these places on our amazing boats in the middle of July or February for that matter. Everything has its charm. I like that. Um, so you just tell me the best time of year to come out and I'll just oh, you're welcome anytime. Schedule a little yeah. Okay. I mean, you no, know, but like I can tell you there is this really certain charm that when we have our basic safety classes in February, you gotta break the ice to be able to jump off the tower. Oh <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah so, so the the polar plunge, parties. baby. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I would oh, love that's it. so cool. I yeah. man, I would love to come out with you guys just to hang out for a little while and and really kind of get in involved with what you're doing out there. That'd be yeah. incredible. One of one of the really cool things, and again, I don't want to sound too cliche and all that, but there is a SAR family. It's like in people that whether you're maritime SAR or you know rescue swimmer helicopters and all that. It's like you learn and meet people, and I feel like I can go pretty much to most places in not just an official capacity. But also just like, hey, I work in Sea Rescue. And they might be like, hey, yeah, check this out. And, you know, just show me something. They're boat yeah. in Spain or what have you. But we also have these like formal crew exchanges that we work on. Um, so through the International Maritime Rescue Federation, um, okay. which a lot of organizations of your listeners are, are members of, they we run a formal lifeboat crew exchange. So I think for about 10 years now, we've had like 500 people go through this exchange program where wow. different both NGOs and governments like send uh, one person abroad and we accept like you know, seven or eight here or something like that. Um, so we're doing the crew exchange this year again in 2023 and it's a week long. Um, so we're, you know, from, from France and England, um, Finland, Sweden, uh, Holland, or excuse me, Netherlands uh, and stuff like that. We're going to exchange crew and they get to be here for a week. And after that week, it's like, not only did they get the experience, you know, like what we have in Sweden and our Swedish people that we sent out with get to experience what they have in Holland and so forth. It's like they become so much like tight friends. There's this oh, that's you know, cool. camaraderie, brotherhood, sisterhood that is, it's hard to beat, you know, because we're saving lives together. It's, it's pretty unique. When, uh, when are you doing that? Because um, you just September. have to show up. It's September, Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's it's a bit of a more of a formal program but what happens oh, is that we, we, we have an application formal. process but what happens is that there are spin-offs from it so people they become friends and like hey i'm going to visit you next summer in marseille and you come visit me oh, in so cool. or what have you, you know? yeah yeah it's super cool to see that <laughs> building and the oh, i love meeting people from all around man that's great oh i love it love it all right, one more question, uh, and, yeah. and then we'll let you go because I've had you here for a long time, and I've loved every minute of it, and I would keep going, and, but uh, I know you have stuff to do, so it's all good. How do people, or what advice would you give people that have that would be in your path? Like, what what advice would you pass on to everybody else coming up to get into what you're doing, and then once you're there, like anything you yeah. pass on? 
it, again, this is, it's a long, long and winding road um, when I came to my way of, of moving to a different country and learning the language. But definitely like you have people that come to Sweden, you know, you, you should learn the language. You know, everyone knows really proficient English and all that. Um, but in all these different countries that I've talked about before, especially in Europe, they have amazing volunteer sea rescue opportunities. Um, so you don't have to go through the formal cadet processes of different types of government agencies and so forth. But you have to obviously be dedicated with time and stuff. So if you live in uh, Europe, especially Northern Europe, like aforementioned uh, countries like of Finland, Holland, uh, UK, France, you name it, um, definitely look into that. And if you're in Sweden um, yeah, and you, you're a, for a national expat or something, um, yeah, learn the language, talk to me and uh, get you started on a volunteer career. And, and all around the world, Australia, you name it. There's a lot of cool opportunities. And then obviously those that want to become professional and full-time, that's a different career path, but I'm sure that that's possible for most of us traveling abroad and making, maybe you meet a partner somewhere else and <laughs> you put down <laughs> roots. Yeah. You can be able to continue whatever you're doing for the love of the sea and so that others may live. Oh, man. Matthew, this has been absolutely incredible. Thank you so much for coming on, joining me. I really, I, I, I can't thank you enough. It, I'm, it's been an honor to have you here. So it's well, good. Thanks so much, Quinny. That's great. Great. Absolutely. Um, I, I am going to come to Sweden. I'm going to come find you. And, and yeah. Then, all right. Yeah. Good. I'm, I'll, I, I'll be waiting. <laughs> if I, I'll be, I'll be the guy in the water. You just come get me. Is that cool? Yep. There we go. Good. <laughs> Put my hand down. Oh, I love it. I love it. All right, brother. Well, I will catch you uh, the next time I come out or whenever I see you at one yep. point or another. Welcome. Cool. Right on. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we are out of here. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Real Rescue Podcast. Please take a minute to like, subscribe, and hit that share button. I'm pulling chocks and taking off. But before I go, if anyone out there has a rescue story they would be willing to share, I would be humbled and honored to have you on as a guest. Or if you have any questions about rescue or anything else we talk about here, send an email to jason at therealrescue.com. That's jason at T-H-E-R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q.com. You can also check us out on our web pages, therealrescue.com, our Facebook page, and our Instagram page at The Real Rescue. Again, a special thank you to all of you standing on the watch today. Always remember, when that star alarm goes off, those in distress are praying for a miracle. They are going to get you. Until next time, fly safe and swim hard. <laughs>